and by your Holy Spirit. I ask this in your name. Amen. Would you please be seated? Well, since uh, the middle of June, um, we've spent a rich amount of time working our way through sections of the Old Testament. We've had a bit of a look at the Psalms. We've had a look at the Book of Lamentations. Uh, we've had a look at the uh, Book of Amos and Hosea. But over coming weeks, we'll shift our focus to the church's vision. In particular, the words, even more. I'd love for us to develop a corporate understanding of what these words mean. Superficially, you could be forgiven for thinking that even more has connotations that everything is going to be better, bigger, bolder, brasher, faster and louder. Well, it's not impossible that those may be um, outcomes of our direction as we move forward. God seems to prefer to work throughout scripture and human history in a different way. God has a habit of using the quiet, the small, the weak, the discarded, the undervalued, the lost, the powerless, the frail, the fumbling and the broken to reveal more of who God is. I find encouragement in that. God can use even a person like me. I realise that I have some natural gifts, but the older that I get, the more I realise that the best parts of my personality, my character and my abilities are the ones that God has the most influence in and through. This morning we're going to begin our look at even more by considering even more foolishness. And we're going to use the parable that has become known as the parable of the rich fool as our catalyst. Paul tells the Corinthian church that as Christians, we proclaim Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And later he goes on to say, the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. So from the outset, we need to be thinking of defining what is godly foolishness. And this particular parable is great at telling us what godly foolishness is not. When you're trying to work out how to do something new, sometimes it's easier to work out what not to do. And this parable is really good at doing that. You could easily argue in today's world that this rich man was not foolish at all. He's actually quite wise and responsible. He had a thriving farming business. His land had produced so much that he didn't have enough space to store everything in his barns. So he had this quite insightful plan to pull them down, 
and build new stuff so that he could accommodate all the things that he needed to. That's not an unusual thing to do on the Gold Coast at all, is it? To pull something down and build something bigger in its place. And in his mind, he thinks, well, there'll be ample of savings set aside for the future and he would be able to enjoy his golden years. Aren't they the types of things that we're encouraged to do in our own lives, in our world today? Isn't it wise and responsible for us to save for the future and to ensure that we have enough superannuation so that we're not a burden on the government or anybody else for that matter? The interesting thing in this parable is that rich farmer is not called a fool because he is wealthy. It's easy when we're looking at the parables to start reading into the parables things that the parable isn't actually trying to answer. And that's one of the things that the parable isn't saying is that wealth and foolishness aren't in and of themselves mutually uh, dependent. But he's called a fool because he appears to live only for himself and because he believes that he can secure his life with his abundant possessions. The tragic tale of the rich fool isn't a reminder that we might die sooner than we hoped and that we might find ourselves wishing that we'd spent more time with the kids at cricket games, soccer games or netball games and less time at work, although those can be useful lessons. This parable digs deeper and it moves towards the heart. It tells about the ability of money and worry to impoverish our soul and rewire our values. The parable also offers an explanation as to why otherwise ordinary or hard-working people might end up existing in their own self-absorbed universes, constructing lives in which they don't have to give a toss about anybody, especially people they can't see or people they don't want to see. This parable clearly states that greed is idolatry. Sort of, if you're my age, an anti-Gordon Greco um, uh, statement. And it's interesting when you read the words that this rich man in the parable is saying. He's talking only to himself and he's talking only of himself. Let me walk you through um, these words. What should I do for I have no place to store my crops? I do this. I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink and be merry. The rich man's land had produced abundantly, yet he expressed no sense of gratitude to God or to the workers 
who must have helped him to plant and to harvest. He has more storage in storage than he could ever hope to use, yet seems to have no thought about sharing what he has with others and no thought of what God might require of him to do. Our reality is that no matter how much we have, we'll always be aware of what we don't have. We are constantly being bombarded by marketing executives and wizards whose job it is to convince us of all the products we need to complete our lives. And the outcome of that is that we never quite feel like we have enough. I mean, who amongst us a month ago would have thought that we need as many ushies in our life as we can get? I mean, this is an area of my own personal life that I struggle with. Not the ushies, I'm pretty fine without them, um, although one member of our family is collecting them. But I do worry about our family's financial security. But more than that, I'm one of those rare breeds of males who actually likes shopping. I love new clothes. People have already commented this morning about my shirt being much better than last week. (laughs) I like new shoes, new golf gear, gadgets, watches and guitars. I don't need them. And I can say that publicly this morning because my wife is not here. But I have to admit that from time to time I have turned to acquisition as comfort or solace from personal struggle or insecurity. And it remains one of my biggest temptations. Like the rich farmer, we are all tempted to think that having large amounts of money and possessions and stuff will make us safe and secure. And greed and worry can corrupt the poor as easily as it can the wealthy and the middle class. Sooner or later, however, we learn that no amount of wealth or property can protect us from a genetically inherited disease or from a tragic accident or keep our relationships healthy and our families from falling apart. In fact, greed and worry can easily drive a wedge between family members, as in the case of the brothers fighting over their inheritance at the beginning of this Bible reading. Jesus repeatedly warns that wealth can also get in the way of our relationship with God. In this passage, he says, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Nearly one-third of Jesus' parables deal with money in one way or another. And it's not that God doesn't want us to have money or to save for our retirement or our future needs. It's not that God doesn't want us to eat and to drink and to be merry. I mean, if we look at the example of Jesus in Scripture, he spends plenty of times eating and drinking 
and having a good time. But Jesus was also clear about where his security lay. It's all about priorities. It's about who is truly God in our lives. It's about how we invest our lives and the gifts that God has given us. It is about our lives being fundamentally aligned either towards ourselves and our passing desires or towards God and our neighbour, toward God's mission to bless and redeem the world. I read a quote from an old pastor this week which I, I really loved. He said, I've heard many different regrets expressed by people nearing the end of their life. But there is one regret I have never heard expressed. I have never heard anyone say, I wish I hadn't given so much away. I wish I had kept more for myself. Death has a way of clarifying what really matters. The lessons of the rich fool don't only apply for us individually. We should be thinking about what are the ways that our society, or more specifically, we as a church community, are like the parable's rich man. What should we do in response? Both, both personally and collectively as a church. Well, my suggestion is that we should show even more foolishness. The type of things that the world sees as foolish. I don't know about you, but if I had the choice between the world thinking that I was foolish and God thinking I was foolish... While in the moment, I might get some immediate comfort and gratification out of people around me thinking that I'm not foolish, in the end, I much prefer to think that God didn't see me as foolish. Being rich toward God is a life of sacrifice. It's a life of sacrifice because we're responding to a sacrifice we have been beneficiaries of. And we're called to develop a culture, both personally and collectively, of sacrifice. What Christ has done for us is almost like we've won it all. But now we're called to give it all away. But the good thing is that we keep being ongoing beneficiaries and recipients of this amazing gift that we call grace. The problem with sacrifice is that it's incredibly frightening. It's often really risky and it can be incredibly hard. We move from relying on inheritances and building up storehouses to a life that gives beyond measure. 
while relying on God for our ongoing provision. In our culture, we often measure ourselves by the size of our storehouses. In the kingdom of God, the storehouses are sold. And life is measured by what we do for others. Let me say again clearly that this is not saying money is bad. Having money is bad. We live in a society where it's an essential commodity, the way we trade and receive things. Jesus knew that and he talked about that in other parts of, of Scripture. But even more foolishness means less of me and more of others. Less for me and more for others. Again, it's about our priorities. By doing this together... And supporting each other as we're doing it, we can't help but reveal more of who God is. This is what God has called us to do as followers of Jesus. But more specifically, I believe it's an area of our church life that we have to be significantly more attentive to. How can we serve others? How are we serving already? What more can we do? What more should we do? What more must we do? We're going to try and change some of our language to help us facilitate this type of focus. We're going to try really hard to stop using the word volunteer. Volunteering is noble, and actually it's culturally on trend to be a volunteer for something. But it doesn't quite capture the depth, the spirit, and the relationship of Christian service. Christ came to serve us, and we, as his followers, are called to reveal Christ to the world And we cannot do that effectively unless we are regularly and intentionally engaged in Christian service in some way, in any way, in lots of ways. To the point where it almost becomes like second nature. That's foolishness. We might hear people say, oh, but why would you waste your time doing that? Surely somebody else can do that. You're way too busy with other stuff. The world sees that as foolishness, but not God. God sees that as our opportunity to show who God is to the world. Even more foolishness means even more fools for Christ. And that means revealing more of God through who we are, because of who God is. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you that you love us so much. You promise to always be with us, whether we're experiencing the bounties of rich harvests 
or whether we're going through the challenges of uh, the droughts in our lives. We pray uh, as we reflect on your words through the parable of the rich fool that we might be convicted to look carefully at our lives and evaluate how we are serving and how we can serve one another more effectively, more often and with more purpose. Because if we're honest, in everything we do, self-interest and self-focus has a way of worming its way in. Help us to decrease in our self-focus that your name might increase. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.